0: interested in um, virtual reality. I just have limited access to it, and sure. I have like limited knowledge of it. But I've played a few games. I've spent some time in it. I watch a lot of it on Twitch, and oh, I'm really? just like, I'm floored with like what what could be done there.
1: Yeah, and there's theater that is trying to engage with it. I don't think I've seen yeah. anything that really, really took ownership over it in a way, but I think... We'll start to see it more and more. A lot of museum installations have been using virtual reality, I think. But, yeah, it's exciting.
0: Yeah. It, it is exciting, right? Because it's almost like an immediate gateway into someone else's mind in almost like the purest sense that they can demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if it is commissioned for you know, a vision that may not be theirs, it is their interpretation of that vision given to them.
1: And we think about immersive theater, which became so popular uh, probably ten years ago with Sleep No More, maybe, and mm-hmm. always trying to push the envelope. Probably Pips that. Island, Sleep No More. P- oh, Pips, Pips Island. Island. Pips Island is oh, the Sleep kids no version oh, of Sleep, Sleep No More. Oh, Sleep No More. Yeah. Oh, right. Actually, right. Pips Island, which I've never seen, is billed as Sleep No More for kids. Right. I don't think it it's is. quite as disturbing or sexual. No. You know. No. It's, I, it's I, I haven't seen it either. No. But
0: that's why I said that is because right, right. that's where my mind goes <laughs> <I see>. now. <laughs> okay, great. But Sleep No More kind of shook some stuff up. Yeah, people were like,
1: "Whoa!" I still have never seen it. I feel like there are a lot of friends of mine who were having these conversations now, which is like we just we didn't want to participate or it was too expensive or whatever. So
0: yeah, I was at the point in life where it was too expensive, but I don't think about money to a fault, and I was like, it's either that or like me buying a bike, Uh and I really wanted to bike at the time. Right? I'm like, if sleep no more stand, if it's like good, it will stand. The right. test of time. Well, and it has. I mean, it's and still it running. Has. So I could go. we could go see it together. We
1: could. That'd be fun. But we may not end up seeing it together. Right. We might be split up. I mean, I've been talking about this recently. It hit when I was in college. And at the time, you know, there were three witches, sort of Macbeth's witches. And two of them are women, or at least originally, and one was a man and had a habit of pulling what he, I guess, read as gay male audience members into a small room and pulled their mask up and kissed them for a little bit and then left them. And I knew two people in college who had that experience. Really? And it was always so mystifying to me that that could happen in this context. Yeah. I don't know if they still do it. It feels like <laughs> probably not... Cool. A anymore. little too soon, right? Yeah. But um, it really started to blur those boundaries. I do know that they've had controversies or I- issues with audience members being too into performers and breaching. I mean, you're so close in proximity to well, them. Who's
0: who's drawing Who's
1: drawing that line? Who's to say where that line should be? Right. It's a hard thing. It's to hard. set those parameters at the beginning of the show, and then you'd have audience members who come back and back and back and They'd feel like they had a connection with people. You know, that's what
0: art's supposed to be, right? Of course, of course. Where it gets like that's where it gets scary, and that's where people want to come in and like
1: where physical barriers are breached Mm. in a way, in a way that they are at least sometimes invited to do so. But yes,
0: but also psychological. Like even if it's like you find a connection. Like even for me, like I got obsessed with Ramin. Oh well, okay. If we're being completely fair, he did touch me. And I was into it. Ramin Karimloo. Oh, yeah. I met him at stage door, oh. and I was like, "Hey, man, you set the standard for me, and like, like your performance every time is like new. And this is my second time seeing it. I ended up seeing it one more time. But I was like, anyway, like, and even what you do offstage stage is very inspiring. You've inspired me to start going to the gym and approaching acting as like a totally different thing. And he squeezed my muscle. My bicep and looked to the rest of the crowd and goes, "Oh yeah, he has to look for it, huh?" And oh, everyone wow. started laughing. Funny. I had a terrible haircut at the time, but <laughs> I feel good. <laughs>
1: okay, jeez. Which show was it? Lamez. okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. Right. See, so so you were open to that, or it was friendly. Well, felt. yeah,
0: and then, but but all that to say, even if you take that aside, like I've I have had obsessions with performers because of performances I've seen to right. the point of like being psychologically connected or addicted maybe, I don't know. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't think, yes, to, to talk about the physical barriers being crossed, that is important to talk about. But I think also like there could be ways in which the show is messing, connecting with people in ways that are scary that don't have anything to do with like physical touch. Yeah.
1: Which is why I think the stage door is such a fraught place. It sits in the barrier, the the transition, right? Yeah, it does. And actually, right now, you're seeing some shows enforcing a ban on stage dooring as a practice because of the virus. (laughs) Well, smart. Yeah. But uh, it is this weird space where people are coming out and they're no longer playing the character, but there was an expectation. And I don't know. I think people get you know, weird about uh, clinging to what a person sort of was or just did on stage and thinking that they know that person, you know, and and it's a different person. And yeah, there's just such an expectation from certain people, younger people, I think that they're going to stage door and they're going to get attention. And it's part of the job. And most Broadway performers, I think like that part of the job, but I think you're never always dying to go out and greet people for half an hour. It's not part of the contract, you know,
0: you're only human. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so speaking of clinging yes. to actors, let us, well, I would say cling our glasses, but because of CV-19, let's just like do it in the air and say cling. 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 And then do you want to pop these pretzels open?
1: I do. I'm worried about chomping.
0: No, no. Just chomp off mic. Okay. It is what it is.
1: Great. You know? Great. If it's triggering,
0: I'll be like, maybe we pause on the pretzels. Okay. That's fine.
1: You'll tell but, me what's well, good. Well, let's pop one together. Oh, all right. Shall so I, two right here in the mic? Uh-huh.
0: Wonderful. What do you think, Ben? Definitely chew off, Definitely chew off mic. Right, okay. So we got to take turns. Okay. To be honest, I won't eat that many pretzels, but I'm going to give you a drum roll. Mm-hmm. By the way, we Lysoled everything. Thank you. Because it's an active studio. Yeah. And CV19 is real. But here you go. Who are you? because there may be listeners who didn't listen to your first episode. What? Repeat?
1: What? Okay, it's very special. Here we go. Hi, I'm Alex Hare. Boom. I I am a theater director and theater maker, and here I am in New York. Been here for ten and a half years. And why are you on the show? Oh, I don't know. I think that we have a relationship because I directed you in a short play, and actually Mm -hmm. you became a part of our sort of, indie theater world through the brewing department, a company that I was a part of, which has morphed into Corkscrew Theater Festival, which is a festival that I run now. That's amazing. Okay, that's actually great.
0: That's our launching off point. Mm -hmm. Things evolve, right? Oh, yeah. It's kind of weird where you just look back and you're like, it doesn't even matter if you would have started a different way because who knows where you would have been if you had started the way that you now think you should have Mm -hmm. or could have.
1: Right. I think about pathways a lot and the established pathways, the things that you imagine when you're starting as being the root and then all the other paths. I think I have to believe in infinite paths to get where you're going. I don't know if I quite believe in everything that happens to you was meant to happen to you. I know that people subscribe to that and that's helpful to think about. Um, But at the same time, yeah, I, I really am trying to be suspicious of the part of myself which believes that, oh, I needed to do that one thing. That's how I was going to get there, you know? We have to sort of imagine beyond that. Yes. As what? People or artists? Both, I think. Yeah, But in particular directing, you know, there are certain fellowships and residencies and relationships with theaters and things that are the ways you get directing training in this country. And those programs are important because Unlike in London, where it's a clearer path to apprentice as a director, you know, you, we need spaces for that. But I've done some fellowships and residencies. There are a ton of them that I haven't gotten. You know, every director or artist gets rejected from a million things. And so it's just a question constantly for me of, oh, what did I, I kind of wanted that one. Or like, oh, it would have been good to get that one. Or like, oh, maybe this was the time where I actually really wish I had gotten that but i think i'm in a place where i'm trying to be very self-aware about the applications and interviews i do and checking in with whether i really am right for it or ready for it or if they rejected me for a really good reason you know i think i think that's that self-awareness is often lacking in artists i don't know about often but sometimes lacking in me as an artist and i'm just trying to cultivate that
0: yeah i mean i think that awareness is is very it can come and go, you know? Like, I I look for it. I I try to keep that in check in myself. Yeah. I think there's also, like, speaking of barriers that can be crossed, like, I think there's a line definitely where you can become... It's almost... You know, there there might be ends of the spectrum of paranoid and maybe pronoid. Of, Mm. like, you know the actors that just believe that everyone's going to give them their next gig, and they truly believe that. And it's not because they're it's not only because they're hungry for the job maybe directors as well but it's because they truly believe like everyone is working for their benefit and then you have paranoid artists who are like everyone's out to get me right. like <laughs> i i can't even get a call back my agents don't get me this or that you know i can't do this i can't so it's like i think it's interesting but yeah all that to say i think it's good to be open to things morphing and that only happens when you kind of like know where you are on that spectrum so like did did something or a collection of things happen to spark this awareness or did it just kind of come as you spent more time pursuing this
1: I don't know I think partly it's where I'm at right now you know having never wanted to apply to grad school and then doing it this cycle and mixed results on that and, and recognizing, you know, deficiencies in sort of what I was presenting and thinking about, all right, am I going to try again next year or in two years? And what do I need to do to, to get there? But yeah, I mean, I think the morphing thing we got on that because we were talking about corkscrew and the brewing department. And the reason why the brewing department became corkscrew was it was a collective of eight people and... All of a sudden, one April, five of the eight people had all gotten into grad school in different corners of the country and said, all right, well, we're going to go do this for three years. So it was really three people who were left, Tom Capusta, who is now the artistic director of the festival, and me, and then uh, this guy, Matthew McShane, who was the founding literary director. And we really didn't know what we were going to do and there was no reason for the three of us to have a theater company really. And then, you know, French festival announced that it wasn't going to return in the summer of 2017. And that's when we, along with Alex Donnelly, our executive director started to create the idea for it. But the brewing department is still, I don't know what you'd call it, the sort of legal entity behind corkscrew. So if you get paid by corkscrew, you're getting paid by the brewing department. It's just a funny little vestige I think Mm. to me of what that company was, which doesn't exist anymore the only other vestige I think is our Facebook page, and if you have a dead Facebook page, you might know that every couple of days you have a notification and it says you've got three new likes, and I don't know what they are, but they're clearly robots or something, yeah. so yeah. anyway, <laughs> the brewing department co- pops up on my Facebook every couple of days I like that
0: that's funny, yeah, I guess you have to be o g uh-huh, uh-huh, you know to like catch that yeah, yeah, um man, yeah, it's so it's it's Interesting, because when we met, <clears throat> I was at a point in the process where I was um freshly graduated, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was like figuring out what it is, not only what it was to like be an actor but what it was that I wanted to do, and so I was like kind of just an a sponge, absorbing everything mm. and ready for everything, definitely not pronoid, but I was definitely like. Open to the fact that, like when I met you, for instance, I'm not trying to be cheesy. It's not just because you're <laughs> here, but like when I met you, I was like, I'm gonna. There's like I'm gonna talk to this guy again for sure. I don't know in what capacity, but like I didn't feel like either of us were um, hungry in the sense of like trying to use each other to climb any type of ladder. Mm-hmm. We were we were like hungry for connection. Yeah, and I it was refresh. It's a refreshing thing, and it just kind of like like this awareness of what it is to be an artist and have the, you know, what, where it is you're going and setting intention. Like I think connection like that kind of comes in waves and it, and it passes. So one of the things that I've been trying to do is be more attuned to when I feel that totally and letting that kind of guide the next thing. You know, we were kind of talking before you pressed record before Ben pressed record, like what, What is there necessarily to say on a second episode when I kind of like did when we've done the spiel of like where we're coming from as an artist? It's like, well now we got the exposition out of the (laughs) way and it's like now the narrative begins. Right. Type of thing. Yeah. And I think that some people don't see it that way, so they get lost in it and it becomes a grind and Mm -hmm. then they realize that they're not like doing things in the way that they need to need to be doing them.
1: Maybe. Yeah, I think it's very, very easy to get caught up in climbing a ladder, and certainly yeah. I have. And I, Cord Tuttle is a playwright who I've become friendly with who has a, by all accounts, wonderful play called Graveyard Shift, which is just closing at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, and I hope we will come to New York at some point. But Cord was writing on Instagram just about trying to shut out the noise of what the reviews were and those parameters of success and trying to double down on or dig into just the pursuit of truth as an artist, which is messy and is not quantifiable necessarily and not always something that you can speak in an artistic statement about or, or at a uh, opening night party or, you know, those sorts of things that are the career moves that you have to make. And that stuff is really hard to invest in long-term, I think, but it's the thing that keeps you going if you're able to lock into it after you know the 10th tw- rejection of the day uh, for some fellowship or whatever. Yeah. You know, and
0: I keep returning to this. It's definitely a thought based in Christian doctrine of like general and special revelation, hmm. and I think that that can also happen. I think um, there can also be... Um, I don't know. There, there can there can also be a, a different level of awareness that is not as surface level or as like general as
1: that. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think too. Sometimes I, I don't know, get stuck thinking about this production, what the demands of this production are, or this theater I'm at and what I've seen at this theater before, and Just feeling like your imagination can get really limited sometimes in thinking, all right, well, it's got to be as good as the thing that came before. It's got to be better than that thing. And just trying to, I think it's something I said in the last episode, imagine beyond what I can imagine and hold my stuff up to a really high standard, a standard that I don't even know what it is, you know, necessarily. Right. So this musical I'm working on right now, there are things that I look at past musicals where I'm like, oh, I, you know, I would like it to be like that in some way I don't want it to be as good as that or whatever but the real original stuff comes when you you have those influences and metabolize them and then really try to reach beyond that sort of thing you know
0: yeah and I think you need space for that like there's a push in our culture I think I mean capitalist culture that's even permeated the art scene of like always produce always make make more make more it's like no, maybe find what sparks you. Find the special revelations in the projects that you're doing. And maybe not only will you see that your projects will start to morph, but the choices that you make in whatever project you're doing will start to morph. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes something beyond what you can imagine. Like you can't grow into something that you can imagine. Right. Because there's a cap to that, yeah. So that's not that's inevitably not growth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is like go. That's reaching a point. That's a point on a line. And the things that I'm finding in my life that I'm that I'm gravitating towards. Well, actually, no. The things in my life that I find I'm gravitating away from are things that have a point. Like for me, weightlifting. Like I get it and I do it for health reasons, but like I can only get as yoked as strong as X. You know, right. I can only get this heavy before I start having serious problems or I need to start taking serious drugs. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't want to do any of that. Right. And for what? For, however, with jujitsu, I can, that's an infinite art form because each time you, you do it, it's, it's, it's infinitely different than the last. Even if you're drilling the same move with the same partner in the same minute, it's going to be different, and that's not so
1: with weightlifting, mm-hmm. you know? I think about that, too. I've been doing a bunch of fitness classes, and I don't know, bar, for example. Yes, you can get more of a bar body. I guess there is a kind yeah. of end point for that or something. <laughs> yeah. It's the ledge, you know? It's yeah, the, yeah. The, anyway. The um, edge. Yeah, the ledge. the l- The ledge is the... The lower part of the the, the glute, you know, that's, oh, you want oh, to make a firm line. Oh, I thought you meant, firm oh, line. The,
0: the actual shape. Yes, yes, Oh, I thought you meant the ledge the of, like, how far you can get with a bar body. Like, that's the ledge, and then you fall oh, off, no, no and who no, knows right. what you become. Well, that too, I guess. But <laughs> okay. yeah, more talking about butts here, I guess. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, the ledge, the yeah. shelf. Maybe. Yeah, yeah,
1: maybe. Yeah. But the ledge is what, like, pure bar, or like some of these branded places call is it. Is the ledge the under, under butt? Under, Oh, yeah, okay, yeah,
0: ledge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Shelf is the top. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah, I'm into both. Okay, yeah, sure.
0: But, but uh, I'm not like a butt guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: I think on just bar... Just Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not like a butt guy. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I, li- I do like both when it's nice. Yes. Anyway. I feel you.
1: But bar, you can, do, you can focus all on the ass if you want, really. But it's also about being able to go through that whole thing mm-hmm. without needing to stop or take a break or being able to push through it, you know? And I don't think I've been in a bar class where I've been able to do the whole thing from start to finish, but it's a goal that I feel like has more to do with what you're talking about with jujitsu than with weightlifting, because it's just more about, you know, your stamina and your, you know, abilities and such. And you can always make that a little bit harder for yourself in certain ways or go a little bit lower whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's less yeah. about those tangible goals and more about the, the journey, not the destination. I it guess. is.
0: It's the journey and it's not the destination. And then there are so many, it's like, once you figure that out, the true labyrinth opens up where you think it's like, I got to do the resumes and the headshots and the connecting and the network and the late nights at the bars after the shows. And it's like, no, once you find, once you look at it on the other side of it, that's when it the, the game I think begins. And you look at the people who truly inspire, at least for me, truly inspire me as an artist is when they were making moves where at the time it was radical. Mm-hmm even the rock who's the most streamlined hollywood example right now it's like no he did something super weird for like what he was right yes even as a wrestler that was weird people were like you're driving how long to get paid what to do what hmm. you know he was in tennessee no one knew about him at all it was like super shady huh.
1: i was in maybe 3rd grade and my best friend was really into wrestling and so we mm-hmm. went to see a wrestling WrestleMania, I guess, event, and we created a poster, and it was like an a animated version of The Rock, and yeah, The Rock was like a big figure growing up in New Jersey in the late '90s, early 2000s, I think.
0: You drew him on the poster. Oh yeah, it's, you drew him it's on the poster.
1: Pretty gay, now that I think of it. I think because <laughs> yeah. he always wore well, I mean, you know what he it's wore. All, yeah,
0: I mean, you know, I think about that with wrestling, a lot of sports. Homo erotic is kind of like a term where I feel it's like weird to use, not because I feel like it's weird to say homo, because there are some people that feel weird saying that. And that's why they feel weird saying like homosexual, mm-hmm. at least where I grew up, like mm-hmm. Chattanooga, they're oh, like sure. homosexual. <laughs> yes. I'm like, it's not funny. Yeah. Anyway, like I think a lot of like sports are um, erotic. Just period. It doesn't matter who's doing it or what they're doing, but especially the wrestling ones. You know, wrestling yeah. is erotic. Yeah, and even the sports that aren't erotic, the sports that are just straight up war, are made erotic. Like um, cheerleading, uh huh. Just throwing that into like football. Yep. Or it's like, no, these dudes are just getting brain trauma.
1: We don't need sex on top of that. Mm-hmm. And then you might pull out that word "homo social" from queer theory homosocial meaning just areas where a lot of mostly men congregate or mostly women congregate and the homosocial sphere doesn't necessarily imply erotic stuff, but it can give rise to it. I'm just pulling it because I'm thinking about most of the papers I wrote in college were about sex in classic literature, I think. Uh So one of them was about Moby Dick, which is of course very homoerotic in certain ways, But there is an amazing... I haven't
0: read it. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Well, read this one chapter, which is called A Squeeze of the Hand, and it's about... You're telling me to read it? I am. Oh. It's three pages. But it's Ishmael and all all the men on the ship with a big vat of whale sperm, and they're plunging their hands into it, and they're squeezing out the sort of globules to make it wait, smooth. Wait, like globules? Globules. I love it. Uh-huh. All right. And their hands are brushing against each other's hands, you know, and he a... feels a kind of brotherhood there. Whoa. So that's like homosocial, homoerotic. Oh, I mean, yeah, you know? your
0: hands are covered in
1: sperm. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. like
0: brushing hands with other men. Right, exactly.
1: And so anyway, that's homosocial to me. There's also sure. something sort of beautiful about it, and Dave Malloy sure. has written this Moby Dick musical, which will come to Broadway or off-Broadway soon, I'm sure, and I think there is a number that is a beautiful choral number called A Squeeze of the Hand.
0: Okay. So that is, like, to me, a metaphor for, like, this may sound cheesy, but, like, community. And, like, community is sticky. Community (laughs) is messy. Sometimes it smells weird. Sometimes it tastes weird. Sometimes it tastes good. Sometimes Uh it smells good. Some people like it. Some people don't. Everyone needs it. You know? And sometimes, like, when you... Sometimes, like, for me, when community locks in and, like, I have a good night with good friends... Even if we don't really, air quotes like finger quotes get anything done, like I feel aroused, mm. just generally, you know, a my senses yeah. are heightened. Yeah, and it's sexually, it's like visually, it's it's sensory. It's mm-hmm. just like it's like you feel more of like life. That's and fine. that's I think that's what is why that's why we're here as a species. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like there. I I get it. I get it. But I don't. Want to stick my hand in whale semen? I was going to
1: suggest it for your next night out, I guess. But
0: where, like, there's definitely a (laughs) place in New York where you could do that. Yeah,
1: you know, I played Eddie Carbone um,
0: from View from the the Bridge*. Bridge. Yep. Yeah. Where? Marymount Manhattan. No.
1: Is he the one? Oh, he's the father. Um, the uncle. Oh, oh, yeah, uncle of course. Who has that gay kiss in that play? Right. Yeah. Which shocked me the first time I was watching the old movie of it, because it's even in that from the, maybe the 60s yeah. or so.
0: I mean, it shocked me reading it. Yeah. Dude, I mean, you know what's weird about theater is that it's just so weird. It's just so weird. It's magical, you know? Like, even people that don't like theater, if you hit them in the right spot, they see the right scene. Like, it's pretty undeniable.
1: Yeah. Like, How was that production of A View from the Bridge? Was it magical?
0: Um, I think in in terms of like where we were at as a cast and the things we were going through, it's okay. The reason I say that, to, I will answer that question. But the reason I said that is because when I was preparing for auditions and callbacks, I was in a diner and I was reading the script, and these moments were popping out to me. You know, upon first and second reads, and I was just like, whoa. And it's those moments, like, for me, that's a very personal, intimate connection. Not everyone's reading scripts and diners, you know, on Mm -hmm. the Upper East Side, Mm -hmm. Midtown, Manhattan. But, you know, some people, they'll see a scene, you know, on YouTube or they'll like, I don't know, some people. Uh, this is new to me. Some people listen to musical soundtracks just to listen to That's them.
1: That's really all I did from age 12 to
0: 17, maybe. Your first your first episode, which if you're digging this one, you should go back and listen to his first episode, you turned me on to the idea of that. Really? Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. I can
1: do that. I love it. I mean, I don't do it anymore. I think I grew out of it, kind of, and I was longing for... Music that had more bass to it or music that demanded less attention to a narrative, you know. But it is an amazing form. I mean, it's honestly like podcasts and podcasts and radio plays, you know, have had a resurgence, you know. And I think maybe I said in that other episode how I felt like it activated my director brain.
0: Yeah, a a resurgence and an evolution, an Mm -hmm. application in mediums that aren't necessarily radio. Right. Okay. And now to go back, answer the question, were were there magical moments? Did we find magic in that production? Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you have a Brooklyn accent? I,
0: I did. I did the whole thing. I gained
1: a lot of weight. Really? But I did that
0: that was like that's my joking voice of like going down to the docks. Yeah, but yeah. I was much older. Uh-huh. And I was much more like pervy uncleish. Yeah. yeah. You know? But um anyway, th- I think the the magic was in the nuance of what we presented, not even in terms of like, were the dialects as accurate as they could have been? Was the blocking as, was the set as good as don't really care about that. And my, my goal kind of is because when I saw the set, like I'm not trying to shit on people's work because I know this set designer and he does great work and I like him, even though he's been rude to me several points. It's just the, the, stress in the air you know i don't mm. think deep down he isn't a bad guy but when i first saw the set i was like i'm going to have to work this is all, this is legit what i thought i didn't think oh it's shit a lot of people shat on it i don't care i thought we're gonna have to work to justify this like as actors because it could work but we have to fill it like we're filling the space yeah where The world is not built necessarily for us. We have the lines. We have to b- continue building the world. That's not a res- That's not a load that is coming off of this responsibility.
1: It's an interesting thought, and I haven't acted in a little bit. I sort of made a transition away from acting in college, and then I even acted a little bit after. But you're right that... You don't have that power as an actor to change the environment unless you are the lead on Broadway and you're getting paid $500,000 a week or whatever it is and then maybe you do have a say in what it is. But oh, you in have an
0: actual physical set. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. cool. But oh, you
1: have cool. a but you have a container that you have to fit within and you have all of your castmates and collaborators who also have to fit within that and tech is a really fraught moment where you think maybe you know what it's going to be like because maybe you saw a model on the first day of rehearsals, or maybe you've been playing with what the playing space is in rehearsals. But you always get there, and it's always different. And sometimes it's a good different. But in the case of this production that you're talking about, it was a more of an adjustment than perhaps you were hoping to have to make. You know, but but yeah, you gotta you gotta make it work. I mean, for a director, yeah. you gotta be maybe thinking about how to really change the space. But an actor has to probably fit within something, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it's weird, too, because acting for a college production, there are so many variables that are no longer there when you're doing it professionally, you know? Like budget, necessarily. Well, sometimes you have more budget in college than outside. Sometimes you have more budget than college, but the what everyone's kind of aiming for, which is like, once I make it, you know? Yes, of Yeah, it's like... You, you're you not holding your breath with the possibility that the set is either going to be shit or not quite it or unsafe yeah. because college kids are making it. Like Yes, the budget's there. It's like, yes, you can have the actual tools, but it doesn't mean you're going to execute it as well as you could with even more limited tools, but more experienced right. workers, whatever. Yes. Anyway... But there were magical moments in the performance and the, in the layers of personalities that we gave to each character. Because I, I, I think that the thing that excited me most when I was doing this role is that I was able to bring literally multiple personalities to one character, as opposed to having a, a really complex personality in a character. It's like, no. Like, we as people, like, we may all have multiple personalities. And when we meet each other, for the most part, with, air finger quotes, normal people, like, our personalities are kind of lining up. And we can categorize conversations we've had. And we talk, I talk to you in a way that is recognizable to both of us. And it it acknowledges the context that we have. And, like... I communicate, I use different words with you than I would with Ben. But like when those personalities don't line up, or whether by choice or by, you know, mental disorder, whatever mm. it is, dis finger quotes disorder, when they line up to the point that makes people uncomfortable, then we start putting titles on it like disorder, multiple personality disorder, bipolar, you know, whatever. But it's like with with acting, you can almost use that as a tool. And you don't have to put judgment on it. It's like, no, let me bring multiple personalities to one person and choose when to show them. Like, this is a different person through the same filter of mm-hmm. Eddie Carbone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and that was the feedback I got, which was like the 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 level of nuance was really um, impressive. Not in terms of like impressive, but it I think it it impressed upon people that. You know, you can have different levels. Yeah, I yeah. I cool. mean, yeah. That's yeah. I think that um, that's the only real thing that college performances lack is true layers and levels, and it's just because they they they're the performant, the talent is there, the work is being done, but they don't have experience. One thing that set me apart was I was just like four or five years older than my peers, and that was that's kind of like what it took to like get the parts. You right. know, it wasn't that my monologues or my auditions set me apart. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm thinking, too, about the way that college performers or young performers embody their bodies and that a real difference between an amateur performer, again, amateur in quotes, and a, quote, professional performer is usually the way that they control their body or the way that they control their limbs. You know, I'm trying to figure out how I can be... Uh, more of a physical director, even when not working on necessarily dance pieces or movement pieces, just being really, really aware about the vocabulary that we have. And I've used Laban movement analysis for a while. It's something that I was taught in theater camp when I was 15, which is one vocabulary for movement, viewpoints being another famous one in Suzuki. And you've got all, all these sorts of things. And I like Laban because it's easy to understand. It's, you know, it breaks down movement into three categories uh sort of duration and weight and direction so you have a bunch of categories like you could be gliding and the gliding is really sustained in terms of its time and it's really direct uh and it's sort of it's held for a while and it's 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 light you know gliding versus punching is really sort of direct and heavy um and forceful in that way so you have gliding and punching and slashing and flicking and lots of ways that you can say oh i feel like this character is dominant flicking but then they feel this way and then they glide you know you just start to be able to piece something together hmm. and i think that's something that you know sometimes we come into a room and if it's a place set now you know then you think okay well i'll i know how i move now i'll move the way i move and just to feel like you can apply more rigor to the physical vocabulary that you have, it feels like that's when you start to see a real shift from uh, sort of not or unintentional movement in sort of amateur theater spaces and intentional movement in more elevated spaces.
0: Well, yes, because the voice, which is ultimately, it's the last thing in the performance that hits the ear, So it's the last piece of the performance that is impressed upon the viewer because light travels faster than sound. Like, the voice itself is a physical instrument. So the ways in which your body is rooted and connected and being used undoubtedly affects your voice. Sitting hunched over like this, doing a podcast is fine. But if I'm singing, it might be better... For me to sit up straight and have proper breath support. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we're about right now. So I think it's like not only knowing the space and being able to command it, but then like having the physical tools to do it. Mm -hmm. I did a Suzuki workshop. Did you? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Oh, I loved it. The Japanese continue to surprise me. (laughs) Like I'm doing Brazilian jujitsu now. Right. And I'm like, it's like the Japanese culture, like it just like creeps in. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know I loved that. It's, it's just interesting because their history of just being kind of like an island, a collection of islands off there doing their own thing, multiple things kind of at one time, but it's all their own thing, and they don't let anyone in or out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, the isolationism. Uh, I'll plug a musical because, God, I can't. Uh, plug in musicals, but uh, Pacific Overtures, sometimes Pacific Overtures mm. is a wonderful musical, mm. and I can't really speak to how historically accurate it is, but it does get really in the nitty gritty of you know foreign policy in a way, and the way that America started to chip away at what their sort of policy of isolationism was, and has some amazing history songs, and then some very moving personal songs, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely, still so, somewhat obscure musical. Thanks for the rec. I will um, check that out on Spotify as well as... I assume it is there.
0: Chapter, what is it of Moby Dick 13? Oh,
1: the squeeze of the hand. It's very deep into it. Is it it. chapter 13? No, no. It's much farther than that because the book is like 600 pages. It's probably in the 300s, 400s. So do do a little spin through a copy. No, I'm sure you could find it on Gutenberg, Project Gutenberg. So here is a uh, question, a
0: challenge of the day. I'm not, it's not the question of the day. I recently was informed of a Sondheim. Sand, I said Soundheim, Soundheim, hmm. a, as a joke. And then people corrected me. They're like, it's Soundheim. I was like, no, sound. <laughs> what did I say? Soundum." Anyway, it didn't work. It didn't land. And they thought I didn't know how to say it. But then I started talking specifics about Sondheim musicals. And they gave me a very puzzled look. Anyway, I was informed of this answer. So I'm not, this is not an opinion. I, th- I know the answer. Okay. I'm going to ask you the question. Yep. Sondheim was framed th- this, this question. If, y- if you, of all of the work that you've produced, if you had to point to one of your pieces that you would not touch again, and if it was revived, it could work as is forever and ever. Amen. Which,
1: which of his pieces? I don't know. He he points to. I don't know because I haven't, yeah, I haven't heard this interview before. I know. Fair. That he has regard for Sunday in the Park. So that's not my answer, but it's in the mix, I guess. And I feel like Merrily is his most personal thing, his most autobiographical thing. So that's in the mix as well, even though it was a popular failure at the time. And (laughs) I mean, he's shown a real enthusiasm for people reinterpreting his work with the West Side Story thing in particular and company actually having just started previews too. I don't know. I have tickets to that. Do you? Yeah, I'm excited to see that. My friend sat right behind him. Oh, really? As he was like taking notes. Oh, furiously. nice. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'll say Sunday in the park. What was the answer? We already talked
0: about the topic. Earlier. Oh. I said I'm not a butt guy per se. Uh
1: huh. That's a clue. He's got a musical about butts. Um, I'm not an ass guy I per see. se. Yeah, sure. Assassins is really, really good. I was just yeah. looking at it uh, a couple months ago um, for an application. I was just thinking about what my production would look like. And Presidential Assassins, I mean, it's so different in today's context than it was in 1990, 91. Oh, yeah. And I think my take on it, I won't go into specifics in case I ever get to do it, but just thinking about the real anger, violent anger that people have towards presidents of late, not just Trump, but also Obama, having stoked a lot of really violent anger uh, on the other side. And I guess it feels like this impulse to assassinate, though we haven't heard in the news about too many attempts to assassinate President Trump recently just feels like it's much closer to the surface and much more mainstream and widespread than it was in 1990. So where it used to be a show that's like, hey, look at these funhouse mirror people over here and recognize that they are you, I feel like that's not so unusual anymore necessarily that the play has something different to say to us now because there's it's easier to identify with that kind of rage.
0: It is easier. Yeah, it is easier to identify I think it's riskier though. Like even as a director, imagine your Google search history. Mhm. Like how much longer I guess is my question. How much longer are we going to be able to produce art without We kind of touched on this earlier, without censorship on any level, whether it's the venue being like this is not in line with or whether it's the, you know, the platformer like YouTube Setting guide community guidelines that are, you know, in contradiction to our rights, you know, amendments, whatever it is. I, I just yeah, I don't know, like at what point, how much longer are we go- gonna be able to tell stories like that? To do the research, to 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 project those visuals into like space in people's minds. Mm-hmm.
1: I think with Assassins and with anything that has guns in it, you know, we as theater artists need to be thinking, you know, carefully about why it's there and yeah. if it's doing harm. There's a moment in the West Side Story revival. I saw an early preview. I haven't. I. Uh, I know. I was given a free ticket. I don't know that I would have wanted to support it with money. I don't know if that's a namby pamby excuse of a thing. But right, I was curious it, to yeah, see it, and I'm I closer was closer to that opinion. Yeah. 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 But there's a moment, or at least there was at the time, where Maria, at the end of the show, where she's sort of moving her gun around, pointing it at people, points it at the audience, which to me felt like, you know, rude to an American audience and not really that provocative, just kind of annoying, you know. And in Assassins, in the revival from 2004, which actually was a really formative thing for me, probably the first, like, really adult musical that I ever saw, there was a moment at the end of the show where all the assassins line up and they point their gun at the audience. Or rather, it they start sort of on the ground and then raise them up towards the audience and then up into the sky and then they all go off. And that's the end of the oh. show. And I feel like at the time, in a moment where gun violence was on the rise in schools in certain places, but not nearly what it is now, or not as talked about, whatever... It, it didn't rankle quite as much but I think now it feels yeah rude <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh hey since our last episode I've been listening to a lot of um like gospel music have you that's interesting Hezekiah Walker hezekiah Walker a lot of keep hezekiah on moving Skywalker. on I love that song and other keep ones. on moving on Do you know how that does one? that one go can you start it uh keep on moving on uh, keep on Keep 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 on moving. (laughs) I can't remember the uh, the first part of the course, but it's it's thrilling. It's really good because it just it's by repetition they really are moving on, keeping on moving on. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, Um, there's something so plotting about it. Even the songs that are super dynamic and not repetitive, there's something just so like next thing dutiful, but like happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you listened to um, uh, Sunday Service album? Oh, a little bit. I should listen to it more, I guess. I mean, it's like it's like interesting. You know, it's an artist's take on inspiration seeped in that whole culture.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I know people at the time were sort of done with it and felt like Kirk Franklin had done it all and better before. I don't know what you think about that, though.
0: Kirk Franklin doesn't have synesthesia. Kanye has Kanye, synesthesia? He says he does. Huh. I mean, I think with all of the craziness that may come with an artist, I don't think, like, he's necessarily lying or crazy about everything. That, to me, doesn't seem out of the picture because he it went to art school for painting mm-hmm. before he pursued music. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, so he he's, like, an artist. So And so that, that, to me, is, like, it makes sense for all of it. You know, like, not only Yeezy and the fashion line, but, like... The way his music works visually to me, I see things and I feel things and I taste things. I smell things. I think he's working on a different level, not to put him on a pedestal. I just think he's literally wor- he's working with different tools. He has different tools. He may not be using them in ways that are beneficial to everybody or in ways that are aesthetically pleasing to everybody, but he... So all, all that to say is like, yes, Kirk Franklin did a really good job but here's the thing about Kirk Franklin is after his career, he kind of came out with this like confession of, oh, I'm addicted to pornography. Um, Like hardcore addicted. And like, I cried about it with my wife and like the Lord can redeem. And like, then he's back in the scene and he's like on Kanye stuff. And it's like, well, well, Kanye's been fucked up from the start. And, his story to me is just his story to me is a little more interesting. And I'm not going to say genuine. I'm just going to say interesting. It's a guy who went from like having it all in the exact way that he wanted, not serving necessarily a God um, in making music, sonic sounds for any other purpose than like what he wanted to like being like, oh, now I'm going to like study the scriptures find gospel music, respect the history, respect my history, and then make music in this way. What he, he what he's not doing is rewriting gospel things. He's, like, making a gospel album. So, no, Kirk Franklin didn't do that because Kirk Franklin isn't Kanye, and they've worked together, and a lot of the songs that Kanye ha, are, are, is doing, like, remind me of Kirk Franklin – but it's like that's part of the story. Is like Kirk Franklin in this world is an OG. Kirk Franklin wants to start making secular music, then you might hear things that remind you of Kanye in that mm-hmm. because Kanye mm-hmm. is an OG. It's like this is where art gets interesting to me because it, it actually d- breaks, it shatters dimensions of time and space where like Kanye can be a beginner, a baby in fashion not anymore, but when he started, he was, but he had a successful music career already started at that point. And so even then then you break it down within the, the medium of music, then within genres, he tr- he switches, and then, you know, it's, it's just weird. Right now, he's like a newbie in the gospel scene.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with him doing gospel, certainly. I have no stake in telling anybody what to do. I, I think... I can't remember the details of this, but there was a concert or it was really a church service, I guess. Sunday service. It was Sunday service. But was that what they sold tickets to at very high prices? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm interested in Kanye and gospel music because of the musical that I'm working on right now, A Burning Church, which in part is about capitalism and and the church and feeling like, look, I, I don't know, he seems genuine about his interest in this, his interest in this kind of music and making it. Uh, but there is undeniably a capitalist influence in him, you know, coming to this, and that's been so popular with prosperity gospel. With I don't know when that really started, but really hit its height in the '90s and the 2000s, where part of our show is is set and thinking about uh, I don't know this, this uncomfortable influence of. Uh, or desire to make money to please God, or that that's a symbol of you doing well is to be making money. And I have to think more about Kanye and how he fits into it, but it feels of a piece with this kind of commercialized Christianity that we see.
0: Yeah, there's a good interview with, I think, Charlemagne the God that uh, I'll send you a link to if you're at all interested in actually... Coming like gathering more context for Ka- where Kanye is coming from, at least what he's stated in the past of where he's coming from. But I think what's interesting is that, like you know, through you know, if he actually wanted to just do it, to to lock it down and and make money, then he could limit releases. But instead, he's choosing... He put up the whole album on YouTube. If you have a computer, YouTube is free. You can listen to the album for free. If you have a Spotify thing, you can listen to it. Many, 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 many infinite streams. He's not getting paid that much for it. You know, if you are his fan, or if you are touched by his music, you don't need to go to a Sunday service. You don't need to buy Yeezys. Those That's choices. That's the game to me. That's, that's consumerism. That's capitalism. And the thing about Kanye that he's professed is that he works for Jesus now. So everything he does is going to be a Jesus filter. So I don't think he's bringing religion into capitalism. I think he's still going to try to make money, but everything he's about now is about Jesus. And if people just want the music and just want the the cycle the psycho- psychological benefits or the the like whatever the, it is that they gain from his art, then they can do that without going to Sunday service. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. can do that without buying the latest pair of Yeezys. But that's what he's good at. He has a whole family and a lifestyle that depends on him making money. Like us, like like at Rock Rising as a business, we have a studio. Now that we have this shit, we have to then continue to make money to sustain it, the lifestyle that we're setting in place for us as a company, but at the same time, we want our art to still be true and about who we are. So, to me, that barrier dissolution is exciting. Like that's like what I feel like what we're called to do as artists. Mm-hmm. That's where sleep no more gets hairy. Mm-hmm-hmm.
1: I mean, it raises a question for me about. Someone I've been researching, which is Paula White Kane, who is the spiritual advisor to Donald Trump right now. I listened to her audiobook of her recent memoir, which I think is called Something Greater. And she got to a point in her career when she really, really was successful, where she had to buy, felt she had to buy, a private plane so that <laughs> she could travel to all of these places in the country so that she could minister to them. And she talks about being really criticized for that and she sort of says, well, you know, I'm a preacher and I want to get my message out there and shouldn't I be able to do that? And if I can do that with a machine that flies in the air, you know, and doesn't cost that much, you know, at least the first one, I guess, wasn't like a super private jet or whatever, then why shouldn't she? I think she is a deeply uncomfortable person. And honestly, reading or listening to her on 2.0 times speed, you know, because I just needed to get through it, her whole life story is very much what the prosperity gospel is, which is, you know, grew up in a trailer and father died by suicide when she was five and really and found Jesus at 18 and then, Hmm. you know, really became one of the wealthiest sort of Christians in the world. And you kind of can go along with her story because she's so positive and can do and professes uh, an admiration for the people and does things like, oh, I don't know, opens up her home on a wealthy old money neighborhood once she buys the house to the homeless in the area she's living in and oh, it didn't. So You know, the, the wealthy people there, they didn't like that, but we're rabble-rousers, us, me and my husband, another extremely wealthy preacher. But by the end of it, she gets into her relationship to Trump, and you, she just so fervently believes in him as a vehicle for God's message, and it becomes sort of horrifying the way that you felt like or I felt like I was sort of lulled into listening to her. Around the time I was reading it, There was a video that went viral, I don't know if you saw this, of her preaching, and she said something like, all satanic pregnancies must be, uh, I don't think she said aborted, I think she just said stopped or something. But people pointed at that and said, oh, this is hypocritical, obviously, and all this stuff. I think that she really does view things in terms of holy and satanic. I don't think that she would say, and she defended herself by not saying that she thinks immigrants have satanic pregnancies or unwed mothers or whatever. I think that she just has a different frame of reference. But of course, at the same time, I think what she would consider satanic would include all of these things that we feel she doesn't agree with as a sort of really evangelical person. Um, I haven't quite... I think I was reading that to find not empathy, but just to understand her more emotionally. And I think I do a little bit now, but God, there's lots of layers of artifice there too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, let me run this past you. Mm I feel like you're a good litmus test for me Mm. with certain ideas. Here's one. What do you think about artists being... Artists having the duty of picking up the pieces where like alchemy kind of left off. Like we are, in a sense, alchemists where we are, it's not the pursuit of gold because not like a lot of us are not rich. We're not swimming in gold, but the work is still being done because we can see it manifested. So like what we're doing is we're bringing our intellect, our intention, and we're making physical manifestations of that, sometimes in forms of light, with video, vibration, with sound, um, you know, whatever it is, theater, podcasts, music, movies, YouTube, um, you know, we're, we're bringing our will, which is in many ways to us something that only exists up there in our imagination, this thing that we hope for, that is waiting for us, And we bring that down to people in ways that not only can they understand it, but then they can take it and literally take it and use it, literally. And we're living in a world now where that's possible. Like, I can give you a file that you can listen to, and it could impact your day, you know? Mm -hmm. And we can think in terms of that. We can get super specific what intervals make people feel good, what intervals open people's minds up to being more open or to what what intervals trigger people's emotions like in terms of or like ah or, or like we have these tools and we have knowledge that we may not be tapping into so it's our duty to pick up
1: we are the we're alchemists mm Hmm. i could get on board with that i think the duty responsibility it's hard for me to think about it in those terms maybe just in terms of what i'm making right now which yes is usually about me burrowing into some area of research to then create a thing that hopefully expresses a something i feel in my viscera you know it feels more horizontal i guess to me in that way wanting to make things that are low to the ground so that other people who are on the ground can sort of commiserate about that thing. But I think you're right that certainly I feel like I've been talking to people in my life who are not artists who feel like they have no frame of reference for or ability to make something and that they do rely on artists to articulate things for them. Um, I just...
0: So then maybe it's a frame of reference thing. It's like not all of us are alchemists. Not Mm -hmm. all of us make these connections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I did choose duty over responsibility. Mm. To be responsible for something is almost like an awareness of it. A duty is something that's there and you can pick it up or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I've been challenging this whole idea with the help of a friend. uh, It kind of in our psychedelic journey of like doership, whether or not we actually are doers of anything. Um, I mean, at this point in my life and in my journey, in my trip, I'm, like, closer to leaning towards non-doership than doership. But I do still see duties in my life that are set before me. And when I engage in them and when I lock into my duty, I feel really good, you know. So I'm just trying to make sense of all of that. Mm -hmm. I think language is the closest thing we have to finding it because language determines our reality like everything that we interact with physically is a virtual reality imprinted from what language is is building like we th- have thoughts we say words and then we build something so i'm just trying to make sense of it all so thanks for being a sounding board
1: yeah i mean uh, tony morrison has that quote that famous quote about language and i don't remember it word for word but just the idea yeah. that we die and that brings meaning to our lives and we do language and that is how, you know, how we feel. Oh God, this is not what the quote is. But anyway, it's about the power of language to articulate certain things about about our lives. I mean, I really envy people who are writer writers who I feel like do have access to that thing. I don't feel like that kind of writer. I I will co-write things that I'm working on because sometimes I have difficulty separating the work of a director from the work of a writer but I think I want to think more about these ideas specifically about the work of a director, because to me, it's such a malformed sort of thing, or it hasn't been around as a practice for that long, really. Sort of became really popular around maybe the turn of the 20th century as a role, the role of the director. But of course people have been doing directing forever. You know, I, want to be a director who rethinks what it is a director does. And for a long time, I thought that meant making myself small in the room in order to reject hierarchy in a way and be a facilitator and create a democratic rehearsal room. And I think all of those things are true and cool and noble aims and also have become real buzzwords for directors. And what is the duty of a director or how is a director an artist, even if that director is not doing the writing of it. I mean, a part of it, I suppose, is, you know, creating the vision and supporting other people's visions and bringing that all to a head. And a director sees for other people, I guess, or a director creates the space for other people to all get in line with one thing, and then that's the thing that an audience is going to receive. But I think there's more to being a director than I think there is, and I'm trying to figure out what that is, I guess. That's the alchemy. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because al alchemists, they were not only searching for other people, but for themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's something to it. Hmm. E- even like just metaphorically. Yeah, for myself. Yeah. Anyway, I got got to wrap this one up. Come back on. Great. Uh, this has encouraged me to like do this more frequently. So m- hopefully, the next time you do come on, it won't be as long as this one. Little check-ins. I, like I love it. this. Yeah, yeah. This is actually kind of sparking my soul right now. Great. And in terms of like going back to Rock Rising, we were talking about vetting projects and like trying to approach them in a more mature manner. Mm-hmm. If this was something that happened more, I could see this being a thing that um, that I do more. Nice. So anyway, um, I know you're working on a musical right now. Yep. If there's anything else you want to shout out before
1: we play a closing game, mm-hmm. do that right now. Mm, Nothing for me I'm trying to think about friends I know who are working on things Always people are working on interesting things That's true Uh, Gabby Beans is a wonderful performer who I went to college with And Gabby is starring in Anatomy of a Suicide at Atlantic Theatre Company uh, For probably a few more weeks And is excellent in it Atlantic, NYU? Uh, Atlantic is kind of connected to NYU, I think Yeah, They have have a studio They do have a studio, I was placed in that studio Were you? Yeah I didn't go there. Okay, I'm yeah. Poor. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good. Uh, it's a good production, and yeah, it's a good program. But yeah, I yeah. didn't know it was. Uh, I don't know the people who, who go to it so much. It's it's an it's a wing of NYU. Like playwrights is a wing of NYU. Yeah. And, and yep. All yep. those yep. that are yep. still out there. Yep. 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 Um, so, uh, yep. Okay. So it. that's cool, and. Um, let me see if there's anything else I've seen that's interesting. I have not seen it yet, but Skinfolk at Bushwick Star is something I'm going to see in the coming week, and that's Jillian Walker, who seems to be a very cool creator, so I'm excited and about And Sleep No More. We're going to see And Sleep No More, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I'm right. kidding.
0: Let's yeah. go to, oh, Pips Island's
1: done, right? Is it? I still see that big, big billboard. Me too, it's, yeah. On or the big big, the big, big place. Yeah, the window uh, paint uh, yeah. poster, yeah. 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 yeah, you know. It's probably there. All
0: right. Here's the game we're playing. And this might be where you hear the doom, 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 Uh doom, Uh doom, doom. I think that that's the right pitch. I'm excited to find out. Anyway, mind meld, okay? Do you know how to play? You're a director. Remind me. All right. It's a word association game. Okay. So you start each round with three, two, one. We say the first word. The first round is, we say the first word that comes to our head. Okay. And then every round after that In hopes of melding on uh, upon the same word, so three, two, one, we say another word where we can associate the two words we just said to get closer and closer. Oh yes, I've played this. Yeah, it's like you know two coins put in those things in the mall where you could like put them in that weird little slide, Uh and then they funnel down and down and down. It's like two you know thought coins funneling, and hopefully they ding at the same time. Yeah. Three, two, one, squelch. Lamp. Squelch and lamp. Uh huh. Three, two, one, light genie. Bulb. Genie and light bulb. Three, two, one, Aladdin. Okay. Three, two,
1: one, Carmelon. Tim Allen was not in Aladdin. Was he Tim... Ro- was or was it was Robin, Robin Williams. Williams. God okay. damn. Okay, Tim Allen and what? What did I say? You said Carpet? I said Carpet, yeah. yeah. Tim Allen and Carpet. <laughs> Three, okay. two, one. Home Toy Improvement. Story is what I was saying. Okay, Toy Story and Home Improvement. Okay. Three, two, one... Commercial. Oh, I was gonna say Disney. Okay. Because ABC became owned by Disney. Home approved. You said Disney I said commercial. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Feels close, but I don't know.
0: Three, two, one. Disney Plus. Animated. Disney Plus animated. Three, two. One little frozen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, yay! God. Oh. Okay.
1: I Three, communicated something to you. Two, okay. one princess. Oh, oh yeah! Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, really good. Should we end it? I, I think so. We All gotta right. stop. Boom! Nice. Let's
0: cling. Uh, audio, audio cling. Or auditory cling. Clean. Clean. Looking for Artists is a Rock Rising podcast. Learn more about us on Instagram at Rock Rising Inc. That's R O C K R I S I N G I N C. Looking for Artists is available anywhere you podcast.